but we ultimately become victorious at the end. Whereas suppressive regimes and governments, and even the people, would vanish through time. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Art Persists podcast, a series by Bosla Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. In this episode, we speak to artist Casey Wong. Casey Wong's political art projects investigate the relationship between men and their social and political environment. He participated in the 2019 anti-extradition law movement and the 2014 umbrella movement in Hong Kong through performance, videos, photography, installation, sculpture and social interventions. Casey left Hong Kong in 2021 in search for freedom of artistic expression and now lives under self-exile in Taiwan. Casey continues to advocate for the freedom of Hong Kong against China's authoritarian regime by using his art as a weapon to fight. In the episode, we really talk about Casey's incredible work. We speak about his life growing up in Hong Kong, before moving to America for a while, coming back to Hong Kong, and finally having to leave forever. We look at some of his really incredible works, how he uses humour often to subvert oppression and really create social interactions between himself and the people around him. The conversation opens with Casey telling us about the artwork that has inspired him the most. In terms of relating to my political arts, yeah. then maybe it's the, it's the pretty leading the people. Mm. A French painting, a very large French painting by Delacroix. Yeah. I get to see the original uh, a while back. I didn't realize it was that big. <laughs> and and I think I think that piece of work um, is interesting because uh, for me, I think art will ultimately become victorious at the end, mm. whereas suppressive regimes and governments. And even the people would vanish through time. So in a way, the painting got the last laugh <laughs> as a testimony uh, of the spirit of the time. Yes. So I think, yeah, I think recently that piece of work uh, rang a bell uh, to me. Mm. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of putting it. And it's, you're so right, art remains and the regimes don't, so... It's very inspiring. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you, Casey, so much for joining us on the Arpsis podcast. Um, I want to talk a bit about your early life. Could you tell us where you grew up and what life was like? Right. Well, I was born in Hong Kong uh, during 1970. At that time, it was a British colony. Mm-hmm. But of course, I didn't know that. <laughs> I was just growing up. <laughs> and then by the time... I have some kind of awareness and, and independent thinking. Um, there is a lot of Japanese influence flowing in into Hong Kong, as well as British uh, pop culture, such as yeah. uh, music flowing yeah. in. So I was enjoying both at the same time, as well as uh, enjoying American culture as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I, I really like uh, rock and roll, old school. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, rockabilly, that's that kind of stuff uh, back then mm-hmm. as a teenager. And 
Of course, Hong Kong at that time also create a lot of uh, uh, culture of its own, like those mm. kung fu genre yeah. movies, and then of course influence a lot of uh, countries. Yeah. Um, but at, at so, but and also gangster movies too. Oh yeah. A lot of, uh, John Woo's gangster movie, Chow Yun Chow Yun Fat, that types of um, gangster movie, which is uh, very unique of Hong Kong. Okay. So I grew up in this kind of mixture of uh, pop culture and songs, and and uh, basically living in a very innocent but vibrant, uh, hyper dense city life. Yes, amazing. And then I was uh, suddenly uh, transported to stay in America. Mm. Yeah. So that was uh, my my first cultural shock. <laughs> when did you go to America? How old were you? I think I was like 12 or 14 okay. around that time. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I, I kind of uh, realized I, I went to uh, America too late. <laughs> I should have gone there like in the 50s. <laughs> like almost like 30 years late. <laughs> I missed the boat. But, but, but the, the, the America that I experienced was a kind of American suburb mm. with uh, all these... Uh, Every teenager is trying to pump iron and make themselves big. Yes. <laughs> and every girl is uh, trying to have this fluffy uh, hairspray, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, 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 shoulder pad sort yeah. of cheerleading <laughs> <laughs> life, which is uh, very popular now. It's mm-hmm. coming back, so so I'm not out yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so of course, uh, during that time, I, I traveled back and forth. Um, yeah. in Hong Kong once and once... Uh, uh, per year, and and then I was fortunate enough to study architecture in Cornell University, mm. uh, upstate New York, and that was quite something. That was uh, because it was an Ivy League school, and uh, you know a lot of smart people there, and and then and it's also a very uh, lonely place. Such yeah. a, you know, it's kind of, kind of like a countryside. Mm. But in retrospect, I think that. The, the education lays a very good foundation for me to almost become like an architectural philosopher. Mm. <laughs> so I, I think uh, when, I'm look, when I look back at that education and also look at what I'm doing now, um, I think the link keyword is humanity, Yeah, really. Um, I think I got it from there, from Cornell. Really? Like to care about society, to yeah. care about the quality of life of other people, you mm. know, want to bring joy to them. Yeah. And, uh, and that ultimately sets me free from architectural practice yeah. to um, a, a politic, political artist. Yeah. And I, I love that you say that and talk about kind of the humanity in your work, because all of your work does have this wider meaning uh, towards like social good or political reform and even I guess before you know you were working in with protest art so much of your work does have that like link to humanity I'm thinking of one of your works which is amazing which is called Paddling Home where you built a four by four foot floating home the structure itself is amazing can you tell us a bit about that work and yeah how you made that shift from being an architect to becoming an artist Yes. So um, I always want to not just produce something that is beautiful or maybe 
what I should say is a question about beauty. Mm. So a lot of my, my earlier work, although it's about architectural problem, such as housing, such as homelessness, it's kind of social issues, but also mm. I, I, I think uh, deep down there is like a critical edge about what I do. Yeah. So I, I, I will never just satisfy in, in creating a work of art that looks good mm. uh, on a superficial level. But one, I want it to be like critical or or humorous. So mm. so it's like a, a multi layers of, of things. Then I will stop. Yeah. So the the paddling home is kind of like that. You know, the question about uh, what is the smallest house <laughs> instead of uh, asking what is the biggest house, mm. right? And then reducing that uh, kind of condominium flat into this smallest uh, minimum dwelling mm. and then put it on the Victoria Harbour. <laughs> uh, so it, it reflects some kind of, uh, uh, it's a ridicule definitely of Hong Kong lifestyle. Mm. How much you pay for uh, and how much you receive is totally un- unproportional. Yeah. And of course I, I'll do performance on it too. So it gives it uh, an extra layer, like mm. I dress up like a sea captain in white, suits and and practice golf on my private roof <laughs> on victoria harbor which is uh, quite a stunt itself mm-hmm. so i think uh works like that um makes people think yeah uh, through this kind of uh self-laughing mm. and and dark humor mm. which is uh which is uh, kind of easy to receive i think for the audience as mm. well as um providing kind of uh, alternative thinking you know people yeah. would think okay you know what is that good is it bad is it luxuries and mm. is it now you have like 360 degrees victoria harbor view and <laughs> <laughs> my basically my square footage is uh, rise as i pedal further and further away <laughs> from the shore yeah <laughs> <laughs> right you know in hong kong everybody like fight for that harbor view you know you mm. can have like a very narrow have a view, you know, between two skyscrapers, <laughs> then your, your you know, property price go up. <laughs> so, so that 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 piece uh, summarized the the kind of exaggerated hyperdensity of Hong Kong. Yeah, a lot, I think, and 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 that's why it was collected, I guess, by the Amplus Museum. Mm, okay, and it's it's an amazing structure. I mean, I'm, I was very impressed when I was looking at it. It's uh, yeah, just on the water. It's it's incredible. Um, I was listening to uh, a TED talk that you did a few years ago, and yes. you described yourself as a citizen artist. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of talk a bit about what that means to you, and also how, like, when you began um, creating protest art. Right. Well, I came to this uh, idea uh, very late. You know, Hong Kong um, wasn't very, very political. Mm. Uh, in the beginning, as yeah. uh, as the British were very uh, uh, clever in terms of uh, governing the colonies, yeah. you know, they turn everybody into a uh, a political animal. Yeah. <laughs> so we are solely focused on economy gains and and, and kind of work ethics, and, yeah. and that's kind of like the end of our yeah. existence. Mm-hmm. But but I think because this the suppression uh, 
suppressive power from mainland China is starting to increase. Mm. And then that causes uh, the people of Hong Kong going through localism, like, yeah. like questioning and and spark of a, a, a self-inflicted decolonization process. Mm. Um, Try to rethink about our identity, our our nationality, mm. our future, our relationship with the land that we are yeah. standing on. So that 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 was something uh, very precious for me. I think. Mm. Um, so 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 that that period uh, uh, for me is like the enlightenment uh, period. So yeah. so for me, I. Uh, I actually literally um, study a lot about colonialism as well as uh, our history, as well as Chinese culture. What is Chineseness? What is mm. what, what is a what is a Brit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, and what is the motherland? <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, that's 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 what they used to call UK. The motherland. Uh, oh God. The motherland. Oh, you you God. won't believe it. You won't have that when oh, you're in UK. God. We got that. No, we all, uh, in the 70s, we got the, um, uh, when the telly uh, closed the station at midnight, you get the Union Jack flag kind of fading out with, uh, with the picture of the young queen. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> when I was in elementary school, uh, I had, you know, in a classroom, up, up, up at the, above the blackboard, you know, you'll see uh, the very young queen, mm. uh, like a like some kind of angel, <laughs> <laughs> not to be tampered with. Yeah, <laughs> she's like so some is kind that? Of, yeah, angel looking at us. Oh, God. Yeah, so that's the kind of um, relationship, and every mm. every dollar have her face on it. Yeah. So, God. so for me, um, kind of existing this parallel world, right? Mm. I, mean, I mean, the the lo- the government kind of indoctrinate us and telling us that okay you're Chinese yeah and then but at the same time uh, this is a British colony and you know, motherland over there and they speak English and mm. you know, we enjoy both culture I think it's uh, looking back now I think it's quite unique yeah uh, they, cre- they really created something uh, interesting yeah. uh, a whole nation of people that are very fluid in both systems mm. Uh, you know, with good work ethic as well as uh, you know a, a, a sense of law mm. um, and uh, citizenship. Yeah, and this is why I uh, I I use the term art citizen mm. because I think that distinguish an artist who just kind of participate in uh, commercial activities, art mm. commercial com- activities, you know, creating art, selling, and buying. A sort of uh, activities. For me, I think uh, art have a lot of different uh, possibilities. Yeah, I call them uh, alternative practice. Mm. Okay. It's nothing wrong with uh, you know selling arts as an artist, but I think uh, it can have other impact, such as uh, social impact or yeah. political impact. You know, and and I think uh, before, if you think deeper, then you realize. Uh, before you become an artist, you choose that as your career. You are also a citizen yeah. of uh, any society, right? Mm-hmm. So, as a citizen, you have this uh, this responsibility. It's already uh, built in with this uh, citizenship. 
Yeah. It's like you're realizing or not realizing. Or, uh, a lot of people just think, okay, you know, I my civic duty is only to vote. Yeah. And this kind of like the lowest level. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, yeah. uh, and, but if you, if you think uh, higher and higher and uh, like, look at what's going on in Ukraine, right. Mm. When a foreign invader invade your country, you know, you have the responsibility to fight. Yeah. Right. Not only to vote. I mean, yeah. just voting won't, 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 you can't vote away the invaders. Yeah. So I think uh, that's why I like the term, uh, Art citizen, because mm. uh, it kind of implies everybody, uh, uh, regardless of their career, mm. uh, they behind their career, careership, uh, there is this citizen duty, mm. uh, and if if you put that together, then then it make your chosen career even more powerful. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I love the expression. I think it's. It's like what I love about hearing that and seeing your work as well is this idea of like in today's society, it's, you know, really individualistic. Everyone is, you know, looking out for themselves, you know, going up the ladder, making money. But also you, what you kind of do is make the responsibility of the individual to actually unite the people as well. So like everyone has a place in society and everyone can contribute to society in their own way, whatever, whatever that be. So I think it's really inspiring. Can you tell me about 2014 and the umbrella movement in Hong Kong and what the, can you describe the feelings of first kind of creating protest art to join the movement? Yes, back in 2014, uh, young student leaders like Joshua Wong and, and his group, uh, Scholarism, mm. uh, took to the streets and uh, tried to fight against the CCP's uh, uh, education, national education brainwashing program mm. I uh, as a teacher I also taught in the university for, for like almost close to two decades mm-hmm. and I, I really agree on uh, on that you know to, you gotta you gotta fight uh, if you just keep your mouth shut then then uh, the next generation would be altered yeah without you knowing so uh, so uh, yeah I, I was teaching at the Polytechnic University at the time. And mm-hmm. and some of my students were were, were uh, joining the strike, mm. you know, to <laughs> boycotting school but not boycotting learning. Yeah. So I thought that is wonderful, and <laughs> so I was like, okay, so you don't come to my classroom, then I can like go to your protest site <laughs> to teach you, <laughs> right, to share knowledge. So uh, yeah, that's that my kind of first uh, taste of uh, joining the Occupy movement. Mm. Back then there was. Uh, Occupy Central movement, and so, so I took the time uh, after class to go to these uh, occupation in in uh, zones. In mm. there were like three zones back then. Yeah. One of the zones I go often is in Admiralty. That's mm-hmm. the place near the government house, and uh, I actually gave a lecture there. Oh, really? Uh, talking about. Uh, protest art wow. and, uh, and you can even see it in in, in the YouTube <laughs> oh nice <laughs> and I, 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 I created a, a little little yellow house and, mm-hmm. and I created a, a, a kind of fake university uh, logo <laughs> and then I put it on top of the yellow house the yellow little house is, is like a podium 
mm. I guess speaker's podium out. But it was so small that my head would would uh, literally uh, come out from the wood from the roof. <laughs> <laughs> and since uh, you cannot use PowerPoint, so I print out all my uh, slides into mm. very large. Uh, panels and oh. use the old school pointer to point at the slides. <laughs> the students out there uh, and they gave a lecture outside of the government house and and then the students enjoyed it. Mm. I think the spirit uh, back then was very uh, very amazing for me. You know, we read about the Roman Forum or I know Forum in Athens mm. and we have this idyllic uh, uh, open public space with a lot of interesting intellectual people you know, mm. walking around. Yeah. This is kind of the idealism, right? Mm. And I can tell you the uh, umbrella movement of 2014, at, at least at the beginning, was like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like all these amazing intellectuals, so they're giving freebies, mm. <laughs> lectures or or advices and speech. And for yeah. me, this is like the new university. I would like, I would love to be there all the time. <laughs> yeah. To learn. Mm. So, so I think if one thing I can preserve, it, it is that spirit of sharing. Yeah. Really uh, amazing. Hi, I'm Hossam Fazula, co-founder of Postal Arts. I'm very happy to announce that our latest issue, The Brink, is now out. The Brink features the work of seven Ukrainian artists who contemplate the impact of Russia's full-blown invasion of Ukraine on their lives and work. As an Art Persists podcast listener, you can get 15% using the code TAP with double P. That's T-A-P-P. Order now at boslaarts.com. That's B-O-S-L-A-A-R-T-S.com. Now back to the podcast. It's really interesting that you talk about knowledge sharing because so much of your work does have that either sharing of knowledge or inc- involves really interacting with the person, particularly in protests. So I'm thinking of examples where you you created blind drawings during the umbrella yes. movement, where you literally make a drawing of someone while you talk to them and you don't look at the page, and it's kind of this amazing interaction where you get to just connect with someone in that moment. Um, and I think you gave them the work after as a kind of you know, symbol of their also, what's it called? A momentum did, of them joining. Thousands of them. <laughs> yeah. I, the, I, I think I did more than 1,000 like line drawings of uh, the protesters. Wow. I wanted to ask you in those moments when you're interacting with people, you're hearing their stories, is, are there any stories that really stayed with you that you can want to share with us today? Yeah, there was uh, quite a lot that you can only uh, get. By going to the front line yourself. Mm. I think uh, some of the stories I heard was, was quite amazing. Like one 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 time, uh, there was this um, middle-aged woman who was like, lingering at the occupied zone. And then I talked to her and then she said, my daughter hates me for coming here. Oh. I was like, wow, I was so surprised because Back then, it was such a uh, student movement. Yeah. Usually, it's like students lingering about <laughs> yeah. the occupied zone in the middle of the night, not like middle-aged, middle-class people, right? Mm. And then that really opens my eyes because uh, there were so many incidents that like father would lock the door uh, to uh, kind of uh, because they're frustrated about the children joining the occupation movement. Mm. And even like severe the... the 
relationship that's sort of a bad family story. Yeah. Another time, um, I heard this story from a woman from China. You know, back in uh, China, they they have this um, law to forbid uh, people to have more than one child. Yes. And then, and they even have a department to patrol the village. Oh, okay. Check. Yeah, the check. And if you have more than one child, you uh, you have to pay a fine. Okay. Yeah. And and it's only a one-time fine, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And then this woman told me like, and then this uh this this government official keep coming every year mm. to um kind of like a a blackmail. Yes. <laughs> So to the point that one one time, like her husband had 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 enough and went to the kitchen and took out a knife, a kitchen knife, butcher knife actually, and wave it in front of the uh, in front of the uh, official who come for blackmailing, and then he said, you know, "We got no money, but we got a knife." Wow. <laughs> okay, really, really angrily. Yeah. And after that, the uh, government official don't come anymore. No way. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really eye-opening for me. It's like, this is how you survive in China. Yeah. You know, that's why. And uh, it's such a you know, dog-eat-dog world. And, and yeah. the money, of course, don't go to the government. It went straight into the um, official's, uh, individual's pocket. Yeah. So so I think, um, yeah, I mean, this, uh, this kind of uh, story, uh, I think, uh, is interesting. Mm. And and uh, and also uh, and also other experiences too. You know, like in the middle of the night during the occupied zone, little girl would distribute apples, and mm. parents would buy boxes of them to ask the, ask their girl to give it to students. And yeah, and uh, those are really in, uh, encouraging uh, moments. One mm. one night in the middle of the night, I uh, I was so cold and hungry and. And suddenly this uh, housewife was pushing this bowl of soup, <laughs> hot soup, <laughs> you know, and, say, and asked me, hey, you want a, a bowl of hot soup? I was <laughs> like, hell yeah, I want <laughs> Give it to me, please. Mm. So so that taught me a lot, meaning uh, everybody can contribute. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to be like a big Arnold Schwarzenegger pushing the police at the front line. Yeah. Right? You can be a little girl, a housewife, or young students yeah. do what you can mm. to contribute your, your 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 fair share absolutely and actually when we i think the very first episode of this of our podcast um we interviewed lady liberty hong kong and they were saying the same thing about this amazing kind of i guess utopia where everyone has knows what they can do and what they can contribute and Flash from the group was saying that, yeah, they'd be at the front line and then towards the back, there'd be like an old lady handing out water bottles for people who are coming back from the front line. And then kids were like further back giving out exactly like you said, apples. Yeah, I think the, the word for that is logistic. Logistic. Which a lot of uh, amateur professional, uh, amateur protesters do not know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you think about the army, right? And, mm. and, War. Let's think about war, and we always think about okay, some soldier, you know, putting machine guns and, and tanks, and and then fighting each other, and then we, our, our our mind stops there. Yeah. But in reality, it doesn't. It was. It doesn't work like that. Mm. You know, for the 
for the uh, soldiers to advance to a certain spot, you gotta have scouts. Yeah. <laughs> the scouts are we're, we're, we're there. You know, now you, they use drone. Mm. <laughs> the drone flew over there and, and check out the place before they put the soldiers there, right? Mm. So yeah, this is, and, and then the supplies of the food and all these ammunitions and gas, mm. <laughs> the bridges. So, so in a way, if you, you, as an analogy, so if you transfer all that into, um, into a civilian protests, like uncivil disobedience or civil disobedience, you do need a huge amount of logistics. The logistic can be like five times more. Like yeah. One, you have one protester at the front and then you need like five guys in the back yeah. to, uh, to help distribute the, the, the supplies and mm. to get them out. Right? Yeah. So, so the whole, for me, I, I was, I think I consider myself fortunate. I, 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 I graduated from the graduate school of protest in Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> and I went through all that training in a way yeah. you know, on the streets. So that was, uh, that, was, that was something I wanted to share with people. Yeah. And I actually think it's, um, I think the pro- protests in Hong Kong and the protest movement will, I was interviewing again someone, uh, an artist called Sai from Myanmar, and he was saying that mm-hmm. he, when, the, when the coup happened and people got on the streets, their, their connections in Hong Kong were sending them um, manuals that they had learned of like yeah, how yeah, to yeah. protest effectively, how to protect yourself from bullets, tear gas, all of that. So it, I think definitely in the, you know, the coming decades, just as unfortunately authoritarian regimes learn from one another on how to combat yes. protesters, but also protesters are learning. And I think we'll definitely see that kind of, yeah, that knowledge sharing. And it's how we really use that in the most effective way. Yes. And, and, and I think the Hong Kong, the Hong Kong experience are, are very unique. Mm. If, uh, if you look deeper, uh, it, it is not the kind of ordinary riot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we don't go to Sarah to steal jeans and, and, uh, you know, LED, uh, TVs, that yeah. sort of thing, you know, we, you know, so, so that in that sense is, is like surreal in a way, you know, mm. yeah. millions of people going out, out there and it's like peaceful, not a, you know, thing. Mm. No. so, so that, that takes a lot of, uh, civic self with, uh, restraint, I guess, mm. and also understanding of the cause, yeah. right? And 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 where do they learn that, mm. right? So this is something that uh, worth questioning, and how can how can we teach that? Yeah, I wanted to ask you also about your use of humor because one thing I love so much about your work is it has this social message, but also it's kind of the front facing is very humorous, so. Again, I'm looking at examples of when you dressed as a policeman in the protests and started singing or dressed as a 70s gangster when, um, you know, when they put like gangsters on the streets to beat people up. What, yeah. what is that relationship? What, like, what is the use of humor to you and why, why do you like using it so much? I think humor is, is, is a kind of uh, distraction. Mm. It's kind of like a delay of information. Mm. Right and and that helps. It's kind of, you can put it like a, it's a candy coated uh, uh, thing because if you if you present uh, the issues or the, or the critical point directly, 
is is it can be very insulting and it can be very uh, invasive as mm. and also um, uh, not fun to look at and too serious sometimes. Yeah, because the issues that we're dealing with is already is already super serious. We're talking yeah. about sending some Hong Kong people back to China yeah. to face unfair trial, and this mm. is like you know, they might get the death sentence. This is crazy. Yeah. So so I think. How to engage this kind of serious topic, you know, is is relating to the tonality of, of angle of approach. Yeah. So I think I think that's uh, that's what I'm doing. You know, trying to lighting it up, mm. candy coat it, and uh, and because I'm that kind of guy, you know, I'm I'm growing up in Hong Kong. I you know I watch I watch. Uh, any Hill show, <laughs> I don't know if you know Monty Python and the Flying oh, Circus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, John Cleese, the one of the um, Monty Python guy, yeah. was just in Tai Taipei. I, I, he's like eighty four years old now, and I, I, wow, man, it's like seeing my uh, my childhood idol. Pretty <laughs> crazy, right? Yeah, crazy. <laughs> yeah, so so that's that kind of British humor have something do with it you know mm. it's not too it's it's, it's uh, blunt but but it's not uh too direct yeah so it's very indirect uh, yeah. kind of a uh, way to deal with a serious matter mm. and i think that's what i've been doing and i'm doing and i'm doing it uh kind of effortlessly in a way because that's what i am yeah <laughs> yeah that's what i am even though i'm like drinking and chatting with friends mm. Cracking jokes. That's what I am. <laughs> yeah. So for me, it's very natural. So I, so I, I what I encourage is, is everybody just be themselves, mm. you know? And, uh, but for me, I, I find the humor can be a very good dose of relief. Yeah. In the time of uh, extreme suffering. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so that's how I operate. It's so good. And I mean, I, I also think that it's it's so important to laugh at the, you know, the regimes or the people that are so feared and cause so much pain. I was thinking yes. of like um, when uh, the Chinese dissident artist Bai Cao, he made Xi Jinping a, a Winnie the Pooh figure. Yeah, <laughs> and that, Yeah, and <laughs> just the power also in laughing at the, you know, the people that, are terrifying and, and kind of bringing them back to to our level I guess um, is so important yeah I was uh, no I was operating like this and then um, I remember back in around 2014 I was like just strolling the internet and I came across this YouTube uh, by by CIA <laughs> <laughs> I can tell it's an old tape mm. and and then the tape was saying, you know, every every organization. I think I think the tape was like uh, uh, geared towards the Cold War, you know, for, uh, kind of fight the, fighting the Iron Curtain. Mm. And then the tape was saying, you know, every organization yawn for charismatic leader, <laughs> <laughs> right? But what if your charismatic leader got whack, <laughs> and then you have no leader, <laughs> right? Neither no more. Mm. And um, yeah, and there's a point there. And then he would, uh, the the tape was saying, uh, uh, maybe the more effective way to just you know laugh at the regime. Mm. You know, they're not afraid 
that you have charismatic leader, but they're afraid that you, everybody are laughing at them. Yeah, <laughs> they're so insecure. It's crazy. Yeah, so insecure. So I was like, wow, even the CIA is like agreeing of what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes in the, in the interview, I would say, yeah, I learned it from the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> Love that really is scare. That yeah. really scares you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and so Casey, you you then decided to leave leave Hong Kong, and you're now living in yes. self-imposed exile. Can you tell us just a little bit about the moment that you thought, okay, I've got I've got to go now? Yes. Well, um, for many for many years, I was uh, saying, you know, I would never leave Hong Kong mm. is my home you know I'm born here why should I leave if somebody have to leave it's them yeah. you're the outside invaders not us we're the locals and but of course after uh, going through 2019 and then 2020 and then they went and then after they uh, passed the national security laws yeah. I, I still are stuck stuck around and observe and and I find always uh, things are getting worse and worse and people started starting to get arrested According to the survey uh, of those three years after they passed the security law, the average is like four and a half day, four point two three dates, right? So mm. let's say for every four days to five days, they arrest one person mm. in the name of national security. Yeah, this is really uh, crazy. And for me, my wake up call is uh, is back in two thousand twenty one around March. Or, mm. um, when they detained the forty-seven legislator and, and of, um, yeah. lawyers, and I, for me, that that is a, a major signal for me to pull out, you know? and that's mm. when I uh, decided to leave Hong Kong uh, for good and yeah. and start researching and start uh, contemplating, emerging, using hundred percent of my uh, imaginative power mm. uh, to to to. So I'm, I'm kind of like treating myself like a client <laughs> and I'm like a, some kind of escape and evasion consultancy yeah. <laughs> and plan my escape route for extraction. Mm. And I decided to uh, come to Taiwan at the end. Yeah. And I mean, so much of your work still continues to, to fight. And I think it's a very good example of how even when you're forced to leave your country, you can continue to protest, continue to show also your solidarity with people that are still there. I was wondering, just as the kind of final question, you could tell us about um, your work Rebel Heart, where you you collaborated with a musical group. Tell us about that work. Yeah, Rebel Heart is uh, MTV. If you go to YouTube and search Rebel Heart, Casey Wong, my name, Mm -hmm. and you'll see it. It's a black and white, uh, short, uh, three minutes MTV style Video. Mm-hmm. I received uh, a call from Sweden. This band, they uh, they sent me this song called "Rebel Heart," which uh, in the, the lyrics uh, dealt with uh, the 1989 Beijing massacre as well as the 2019 yeah. uh, Hong Kong anti-extraditional movement. So they said, "Hey, you know, I I really uh, like the MTV that you did." Because before uh, I, I when when I left Hong Kong, I, I made an MTV. Mm. You go to the YouTube again, you see me singing this song. We'll meet again. Mm. It's a very old British song <laughs> by Vera, Vera Lynn. Yeah, 
And um, I think uh, every Victoria Day they would sing this song. Mm. And I, I love the lyrics in, in there, you know. So I made a video and they saw that video. Mm-hmm. And then they want me to sing it. <laughs> want me to sing Rebel Heart. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and they did a demo. Mm. When I listened to the demo, I was like, wow, this is really good. <laughs> I, mean, I, can ne- I can never beat that. <laughs> so I just kind of like uh, try to push it away as long as possible. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, I'll do it. But later, when I find a chance, and then finally that chance came mm. uh, uh, for the... Uh, an exhibition that I was doing at the Human Rights Museum in Taipei. Yeah. And then I took the song and really uh, digested the lyrics and and, and, uh, and went out and shot it in Taichung mm. uh, with my wife. My <laughs> wife is the camera woman. Ah, nice. <laughs> yes, just, just, just two of us <laughs> in this, uh, uh, in this uh, very uh, vast, empty um, canal sort mm. of uh, Place. You you see a lot of those dry dry riverbed, yeah. In in Taiwan, and and the images that come out, uh, um, um, kind of link, uh, like this distance historical events we call the nineteen eighty nine Tiananmen massacre, mm. as well as the current uh, uprising images. So you see, uh, people wearing helmets and and uh, face mask and shadow dancing with the, the, the disappeared brothers and sisters marching mm. together yeah. or act by me. <laughs> and then you also see like middle-aged guy, you know, waking <laughs> up in the middle of the field with white shirt and mm. loudspeakers and, like, yeah. um, and ha- headbands. Mm. So images like that, uh, for me, I think um, it's important, you know, because uh, I think one, one event informs the other, like yeah. what we just talked about, right? Even yeah. local events can, could, could inspire uh, a faraway country. Yeah. So so it's all related. So I think uh, that, that video um, uh, is trying to preserve that spirit. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I'll, um, I'll put a link to the video in, this, sure. in the episode description. I've taken so much of your time, so I just wanted to ask you one final question, which is, sure. Casey, what are you working on at the moment? What have you got coming up next? I'm working on my uh, solo exhibition, mm-hmm. which will open in Taichung uh, in middle of October. Wow. The exhibition is, uh, is called Battlefield Apocalypse mm-hmm. 2. Uh, I did a Battlefield Apocalypse uh, 1 a year ago. Mm-hmm. So this 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 exhibition is is war war related. Mm-hmm. Just uh, in this past year, Taiwan was under so much military pressure. Yes, from mainland China. You now Xi Jinping is always boasting about uh, invading uh, Taiwan militarily. Yes. So so my my exhibition is a is a contemplation of war, mm. uh, the kind of uh, pre war, uh, during war, and post war. Of a dystopian imagination, mm. so uh, which offers uh, a lot, a lot of alternative uh, imaginary scenery, you know, to the to the audience in, of Taiwan. Mm. So I'm working on that. Amazing. Well, I look forward. Sadly, I probably won't be able to see it in person, but I look forward to seeing uh, yeah, photos of it at least. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Casey. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today, and um, 
Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story and your life with us. Thank you. We'd like to thank Casey for joining us for this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about his work, as always, you can find links in the episode description. And if you'd like to hear more from other artists using their artwork for protest, why not go back and check out some other episodes? From Lady Liberty Hong Kong, to Barit Sao, to Sai and Kay, there's so many incredible stories. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Artpsist podcast. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could rate the show, share it with friends, and give us some feedback. Only with your help can these important stories be heard. Thanks for listening and see you next week.